another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is, almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. As we discuss the changing times and uh, the things that are going on out there, always remember that any opinion you hear from me is that of one man. It's my opinion, and uh, sometimes I'll give you facts, and I'll give you a source, and I'll say this is what's going on, and this is the way that it is. Then when I tell you what I think about that, it's up to you to form your own opinion. And it's up to you to make your own decisions about what to do about it and how to react to it. I like to say that disclaimer once in a while just because I think sometimes people think I'm telling you how I think you should act. And that's, that is not survivalism. Survivalism is this individual self uh, ordained responsibility for you and those that you care about. So I just wanted to point that out at the beginning of today's show. Today's show, I'm going to do something I've done before. I'm going to go through some different methods of food preservation. And this is mainly for food that you would procure or produce yourself. Uh, but I guess it could also be used if, let's say, you went down to the farmer's market for an end of season sale where they just like dump everything super cheap and you can buy a whole bunch of uh, vegetables or fruits or something like that, very low cost. Maybe you'd preserve them that way too. I know a lot of people do that as well. Uh, I did the house cleaning at the end of the show yesterday. I think I've determined that I prefer to kind of do our house cleaning at the beginning of the show. And that may let me run right through to a close with my final thoughts. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. And that way I won't forget either because there's some important things that I need to talk about today. Uh, I really don't want to forget about them. Number one is uh, I am going to be at the Fort Worth Gun Show. I have set the day for Saturday. Uh, I will probably arrive around uh, uh, 10.30 to 11 o'clock, and uh, we'll have a rally point. It's on the forum. You can go there and see exactly where and what time to uh, to meet up with me. And uh, if you're coming and you'd like to make sure that you find the group, if you private message me or email me and let me know it's about the Fort Worth Gun Show, I will give you my cell number. Obviously, I'm not going to give out my cellular number on the air, on the blog, on the forum, um, because I don't really want to spend uh, the next two weeks taking phone calls. I'd really love to hear from all y'all. That's why I have the 800 line uh, for uh, you to call in your questions and, and thoughts and things. That's the other thing I want to point out. Um, I haven't been good about reminding y'all of that. We have a phone number, uh, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. If you call that number and leave a message that's a question or opinion or a thought or something to be used on the air, uh, generally speaking, it's going to be about once every two weeks at least now. I'm going to do a listener call-in show, and it's not quite the same as doing live call-in, but it's a good step in that direction, and that seemed to go very well. So remember, if you want to make a comment, suggestion, or ask a question, and you want to do it verbally, 866-65-THINK, the Member Support Brigade beta program is officially closed right now. You cannot join until I reopen it. Uh, By tomorrow, I'll try to have a page set up where if you want to be notified when it reopens, I'll send you an email right away letting you know about it. But when it reopens, it's going to open for any and all that want to participate. Uh, One of the issues that has come up during the beta is some people don't like to use PayPal or credit cards through PayPal. Um, I could not take cash during the beta. 
could not take money orders during the beta, I could not take checks during the beta. And I want you guys to understand that wasn't my policy, as some of you guys called it, it was a limitation. The software that I use to run the members area has to have some modifications done to it so that I can manually enter accounts, set renewal dates, and do things like that. Um, so we are going to have a cash or check or money order option when we open the program up for everybody. The only restriction we're going to put on that is, as I've said, the program's $5 a month or $50 a year. For those that want to pay cash, we're only going to do an annual billing. That way it'll be uh, a lot less work on our end, and you get a bit of a discount anyway. Uh, saving stamps from mailing 12 times a year anyway, I think it's probably a better idea. Another thing I want to point out to the house cleaning point today is Region 5 is having a get-together. It is in Texas. It's probably going to be, probably going to be somewhere around Goldthwaite. It is probably going to be over Memorial Day weekend is what it looks like it's going to be now. I want to make sure that you understand this. If you are from freaking Alaska or Patagonia or Timbuktu, you are still invited. It is not just for Region 5. Region 5 is just who is putting it together. It should be a good time. We're just basically going to have a camp out slash pseudo bug out. We're going to throw down on some barbecue. We're going to throw down on some other food. Uh, you're welcome to bring your own food or uh, divvy up, so to speak, Annie up to pay for the food that Dan is setting up to provide for us. You just need to let them know in advance. There's a forum thread about it. I'm going to try to remind you guys every show up till um, up till the day of the, the get-together that that's going on. I don't want to see what happened to Region 3 happen here. There was a lot of work went into that, and then people just didn't commit to coming. Uh, come on out. Meet some other TSP members. I think we'll have a great time together. Uh, and then the other thing is, tomorrow I'm publishing my Declaration of Independence. I hope you've been working on yours. When I say my Declaration I mean, my individual declaration of individual sovereignty and my refusal to accept dependence upon the government. I'm going to publish that sometime tomorrow, and I'm going to make the page where it's published available for you to follow up by publishing your own declarations of independence. So be thinking about how you want to word your statement to our government that you refuse to be dependent upon them, which would make you independent from them. Think about how you want to word your statements that they work for you, you don't work for them. Think about that, because I want some variety and individualism there. And uh, before I go into the storage of food, I have to answer one question, because this just keeps coming back to me. And, and sometimes, folks, I wonder if some of y'all actually listen to what I say. I keep getting questions about 401ks. How do I get my money out of a 401k? I never told you to get your money out of your 401k. Never. What I've said, and at this point, I don't know if you should do it anymore because we've already fallen so far, and it would seem like we might be near the bottom, but I'm looking that the market might fall another thousand points yet. I'm not sure. you got to make your own choice with this. But what I was saying to get out of the stock market, if you're in a 401k, I guarantee you there's a fund in your 401k that's basically a cash fund, a money market fund, a cash value fund. They'll call it all different things and different programs depending on who's running it, but it's a cash fund. It usually pays some crappy interest rate under 1%. When I say get your money out of the market and you're sitting in a 401k, what you do is you change where your money is inside your 401k to cash. Now, let me tell you the one thing you got going for you. If you've got a 401k with an employer match, there was a guy on the forum yesterday, this is how I think it was, up to 5% or 4%, 100% matching contributions to 401k. 
Okay, folks, that's a 100% return on your 4% of investment, right? So if you're making, I don't know, 50 grand a year, and uh, you're contributing then uh, 4% of 50 grand, $2,000 a year to your 401k to max out your employer match, he's putting in 2000 your money's doubling, your contributions double every year. So if you don't feel comfortable with the stock market and you want to still be putting some money into your 401k and you have an employer match, then what you do is you just put all your money into the cash side or maybe some of the safer bonds, and they're not even that safe right now, but you just put it aside from the standard indexed funds. Don't worry about the interest rate. How can you be worried about the interest rate with a 100% return right now? Because, folks, when you put in $1,000 and your employer contributes $1,000, you have two, you just made a 100% return. If you need to do 10% a year, you've covered 10 years of returns. So don't make this overly complicated, and please don't ask me now what to do with your money, whether to keep it in the market or take it out. I can't tell you that, because I really, at this point, do not know how much further we have to go down. I don't know if we're done yet. I don't know if we're going to continue. All I can tell you is that when I'm buying stocks right now, I'm cherry-picking at one at a time, and I'm buying small amounts of very, very depressed stocks that seem like the companies still have financial stability. That's all I can tell you there. I'm not a financial advisor. Now, what I told you in June, July, August, September is get out of the stock market, not get out of your 401k. And I said it over and over again because in that case I knew. And I think everybody else knew and nobody wanted to admit it. So let's go on to a happier subject now and let's talk about storing food and some different methods for doing that. You know, actually, before I do that, let me give you one more little piece of advice on this 401k thing, because I want to make sure that the things that I'm telling you guys that you should be doing are understood. Another thing that I've said is, if you don't have any cash reserves you can put your hands on. You don't have any savings, CDs, uh, cash money in hand. You don't have any savings built up. And you're contributing a bunch of money to your 401k. Stop contributing to your 401k or reduce your contributions to your 401k. And then... You know, start putting some money aside that's for cash so that it's short term. Don't lock all of your savings into deferred retirement vehicles. I don't care if it's a 401k, IRA, a SEP. I don't care what it is. If you don't have any money that you can get without, you know, paying a penalty or tax consequences or something like that, you need some. Now, let's say, just, you know, again, I, I don't know, it may be. I'm not being clear here. I think I'm a pretty clear guy. Let's say you contribute 10% of your salary to your 401k, and you've been doing that for five years. Hopefully, you've been putting it in cash recently and letting the market fall and waiting to go back into you know stock balance funds or whatever. Regardless of that, now, you've been putting that 10% in there for, for five years. Let's say you have $50,000 in there, but you have no savings account at the bank. You have like five bucks in a checking account. All right. What I'm saying is reduce the 10%, take the money you're now not contributing to your 401k, and build up an emergency fund, a savings account, some sort of money you can put your hands on if there's an emergency and you need it without paying a penalty. All right, which you'll have to do if you take it out of your 401k. What do you do with the 50 grand that's sitting in there or the 100 grand that's sitting in there? Nothing. 
It stays in there. Okay? You might even, if you're at, like, if you got that much money in there and you have no savings account in the bank, you may want to completely cut that off until you build up a savings account of at least a month, at least 30 days of income, for God's sakes. You folks that put all your money into your retirement account, what are you going to do if you lose your job? And you have no fallback plan because you're, you, you spend every dime you make and you're not saving any. That's what I'm saying. So let's get off of that. Let's get into some food storage alternatives. And uh, I'm going to go over, what am I going to go over? Six, I guess, today. Six different methods of storing food. And again, these are primarily for types of food uh, that you would produce yourself or procure yourself from like harvesting or hunting or fishing. And I think it's important that we're not just storing mountain house food or we're not just storing rice and beans and pasta. We need to be putting variety into our storage. And if we're growing a garden, which you should be growing a garden, and again, I don't care if you have a balcony. You can grow something. So... One of the problems with gardening is that, you know, you, you kind of limp your production by, limp your production by. Uh, you get a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Then it starts to build up to where you can eat something out of your garden every day, and that starts to be really cool. And then all of a sudden, nature kicks in. And boom, there's an abundance. And now you're sitting here looking at, you go out to your little row of green beans that you've, you know, maybe picked once or your first small harvest and you got enough for two meals. And now you look at that row of green beans and you pick the leaves up and you look down there and you go, holy God, where did those come from? They weren't there yesterday, it seems like. It almost seems like they show up overnight. So you you get a bucket out and you pick, you know, almost a five-gallon bucket full of green beans or wax beans or purple beans or whatever kind of beans they are. And then you sit there and go, man, I'm going to be eating beans every day for the next month. And, geez, even if I do that, some of these are going to go bad. So then you realize, well, I've got to figure out how to store the surplus. I've got to figure out how to be an ant with these beans. The same thing happens with tomatoes. Oh, but God does it happen with zucchinis, even with just one or two plants. Corn. I mean, you name it, anything you grow, once things really kick in, you end up with an abundance. And now you can give some away, but since you're doing this to provide for yourself, your family, and your home, doesn't it make sense to come up with some methods of preservation? And one that I'm experimenting with a lot more this year, and I actually plan on building uh, a solar-powered version of it this year, is dehydration. And I've done a little bit with dehydration in the past. I, I found out about making something called zucchini chips just by sun-drying zucchinis. Uh, they could also be done in a warm oven if you are dealing with uh, really overcast, non-sunny, very moist, wet days. Um, so you can just set your oven on warm and, and do the same thing uh, with the door slightly open uh, so that they get some air exchange. But you dry the zucchini chips, and before you start the drying process, you sprinkle a little bit of kosher salt on them, uh, maybe a little bit of herb or seasoning, and you dry them until they're crisp enough to break when you bend them. Instead of bending, they, they crack. You put them in jars, and they seem to store almost indefinitely that way. And they're great to eat like a chip. They're great to chop up and throw into a soup right at the end. They rehydrate. Um, they're just an outstanding little thing to do. And uh, that was great. But, you know, this year I'm growing as much as I can. And I'm going to have a lot more dehydrating to do. 
So I came across a YouTube channel called Dehydrate to Store. And of course, how did I find this YouTube channel? In my own forum, in our survival podcast forum, one of our members, I don't remember who, or I'd give you credit for it, posted uh, about this person's video. So I went and watched her videos. And when I saw what happened to a green bean when she dehydrated it, It was, honest to God, folks, it wasn't much bigger than maybe two grains of rice glued together. That's how tiny it was. And she said, and I'll take her at her word, that when you uh, rehydrate that green bean, you'll hardly know a difference. It'll come right back. Carrots that looked like little tiny pieces of rocks, little pebbles uh, that were actually half of a baby carrot. How small this stuff got. And uh, she just stores it in jars with O2 absorbers. And I looked at it and said, this is something I'm really going to have to look at doing a lot more of this year. Uh, potatoes were also another great thing. And I thought, you know, potatoes are going to be a great thing to do dehydration with. So, you know, how do you dehydrate? Well, one of the things that you have to realize is that a lot of foods that you're going to dehydrate, you can't just dehydrate. You have to process them a certain way for, first. And, and generally, we refer to that as blanching. So, and oh, I, I think it's pretty daggone close to if you were going to freeze it, and it has to be blanched. And if you're going to dehydrate, it has to be blanched. It's the same rules. Uh, and I think it's about the same length of time from what I've learned this year now. So, for instance, when I, when I freeze my broth, I steam blanch it for about three minutes, and then I wrap it up in uh, Ziploc bags, and I freeze that in the freezer, and I get very fresh broccoli out of the freezer that way. It doesn't get hard. It doesn't get nasty. And the reason you have to do this is there's an enzymic process that goes on inside of plants, and even when you dehydrate it, even when you freeze it, that process continues to happen, and the food doesn't, I would call it spoilage, because I before I knew this, I made the mistake one time of putting a great big bag of green beans into the freezer without blanching them. They didn't go bad. They wouldn't have killed you to eat them. In fact, we did eat them and then we threw most of them away and we never did that again. What happens is they never get, you cook them like crazy and they never get soft. They stay this very hard, stringy texture uh, and it just isn't any good. So, if you're going to be doing dehydration, you want to look at blanching tables and get blanching times, just like for freezing. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link to this lady's YouTube channel, and you can go by and have a look at her videos. She's got a whole series of videos. And then for our, our premium members, I'm going to be doing a video this uh, this coming month. I'm going to be building a solar dehydrator, uh, and I'll make that video available in the members area. And we'll look at doing some different forms of dehydration. But basically, what I I've gleaned out this year is if it's uh, if it's a fruit or a vegetable, there's a way to dehydrate it, and the space saving is amazing. I've seen a guy that took a 10-pound sack of potatoes, and when they were dehydrated, they basically fit in a quart mason jar, which is pretty cool. And when you rehydrate them, all that space comes back. That's just how much water there is in a potato. So that's something I really encourage you, especially if you're a gardener, to be looking at this year is getting into dehydration. And if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that we buy from people like Mountain House, um, 
it's just dehydrated. That's really all it really comes down to. It's well-packaged, deeply dehydrated food. So you have the ability to do that yourself. Uh, use any type of airtight uh, container and a little bit of O2 absorbers. Oh, and this, uh, this gal that I'm going to give you a link to, I've contacted her. Hopefully I'm going to be able to bring her on the show to do an interview with me as a guest. And uh, she's definitely one of us, beyond just storing food. During the end of one of her videos, she talked about the need to store food and mentioned Gerald Salenti. So that's when I decided to get in touch with her. So really take a good hard look at dehydration this year. Smoking is, is really one of my favorite things. It's something I've done for a long time. And what I want to explain about smoking is there's really two forms of smoking. And you can use smoking to cure meat, cheese, nuts, uh, to make ham, to make sausage, to do all types of things and extend storage lights. A lot of times when you smoke items, it doesn't remove the need for refrigeration, but it, it extends the storage time without it, or it reduces how cold the, stuff, the food really has to be uh, to store well. But when it comes to smoking, you have cold smoking and what I call hot smoking or warm smoking. Now... Warm smoking is probably what you do to your brisket or a rack of ribs where you use indirect heat and smoke and you might use like a side box smoker barbecue pit or something like that. The point to any type of warm smoking or hot smoking is the temperature of the meat or the item being smoked is, is definitely increased a great deal. So, for instance, it would be impossible to warm smoke cheese. If you tried to warm smoke cheese, it would melt. And if you're trying to smoke things for long-term storage and you're kind of doing a pseudo-smoke-slash-dehydration, i.e. making beef jerky, you're better off with a cold smoke. Now, it's never going to be ice cold, freezing cold. It's just not going to be getting up into cooking temperatures. And so how do you cold smoke? How do you build a smokehouse that will do that? Well, it's really a very very old and very simple process. You basically need two structures instead of one, and then some form of a connecting pipe connecting the hot area to the area where the food is actually stored. And there's a lot of ways to do this, but the easiest one is simply by using a piece of pipe. And uh, you can construct some things that are, you know, pretty interesting out of junk and what's left over. I have an old gas grill uh, that, that I'm going to gut, and I was going to gut it and turn it into a, uh, a charcoal grill because uh, I got a nice new stainless one. And then my son and my wife, for a Christmas present, bought me a great big, beautiful new Bromfels cast iron sidebox smoker. And, and with that, there's no reason for me to have a, you know, convert this old uh, this old grill into a barbecue grill. So what I'm going to do is remove the legs from it and set it down lower to the ground and attach a piece of pipe to it and use that as my firebox. And then I'm going to run that pipe to something else I have that's old and broken down. I have an old, broken down freezer. And it's one of the stand-up, it opens like a refrigerator to the front, but it was a deep freezer uh, that burned up on us. And I've been thinking about what am I going to do with that? I've had different plans for it. So what I'm going to do is put a hole in the side of that, run the pipe into it, and then make that into my smokehouse, which is a very old, <laughs> excuse me, folks, old refrigerators and freezers have been made into smokehouses for a very, very long time. So that's something else I'll, I'll video my progress as I do that. But I thought what would be cool today is that I could tell you, well, where did this process of a smoke chamber and a fire chamber come from, and how can you do that today in a primitive stand, you know, a primitive way? It's pretty simple. It really is pretty simple. What you do is your fire goes in a hole in the ground. 
that you cover with something that you know won't burn. Basically, wet boughs, whatever you got to do to keep it from burning. Today we have metal and things like that, so it might be a better way. You have to leave some ventilation so the fire can breathe. You, you, when you start the fire in the hole in the ground, you start the fire as a good hot fire till it burns down to coals. When you get it down to coals, then you're putting wet. Uh, wood that's good for smoking like hickory or pecan or apple, some kind of a good smoke hardwood, mesquite, uh, whatever you have available to you on top of it. That needs to be soaked in water and you slowly add it. That creates your smoke. You don't want it really burning high hot and you cover it. Now what you do is you you actually do this in a place, it's really helpful to do it in a place where the ground is slightly sloped and you basically hand dig a tunnel and there's many different ways that you can do that, but you need a tunnel of at least four feet, and uh, more is better. Ten feet is a generally accepted rule of thumb, though I've done it with six feet, and I've not had a problem with it getting too hot inside of the smoke chamber. And then because you're not actually building a fire in your smoke chamber, the other side of this tunnel can be nothing more than basically a, a, a little wooden hut over top of a hole. And the smoke comes out into that hole and up through that little hut, and that's how you smoke. And that's basically how most of the Indians did their smoking in, in North America before we got here and modernized everything. And it, it sounds complex, but it's really not. If you're wondering, well, how do I get a tunnel... 6 to 10 feet underground connecting these two structures. You don't dig a tunnel, you dig a trench. You dig a trench and then you cover your trench with something like broken down trees or whatever and then you cover that with mud. And then you don't walk on it. You know, you rope it off or something, mark it off so that you don't walk on it. And you've created now a primitive smokehouse. So your smokehouses can be built anything from very, very primitive, completely, you know, that's something you could build that smokehouse like less, you know, like, like Les Stroud does or uh, Bear Grylls out in the woods. If you were stuck out there and you're going to be there a long time, you could build a smokehouse like that. Or you can use some modern materials to simplify its construction. But my point is, there's you know there's varying degrees of how much modern technology you want to bring into it. But the process is always the same: good hot bed of coals, moistened, well soaked, uh, good hardwood on top of those coals to create your smoke, and then some distance for the smoke and the air to cool down, so that it's really more of a curing process and it's not a cooking process. And that's great for making things like jerky and smoking fish, especially if you want to make fish that's going to store well without heavy refrigeration. It still needs to be kept cool, uh, but you can do salmon this way and really get a long extended storage life for it. So there's a little primer on smoking today. Another thing I wanted to tell you, that, you know, just really think about picking up as a skill is pickling. And it's one thing to pickle cucumbers and make pickles, and that's great. I just want to point out that you don't have to just pickle cucumbers. You can pickle peppers. You can pickle asparagus. You can pickle artichoke hearts. You get the point. You can pickle anything. And if you're not a person who really likes really sour pickling brines, you can adjust your brine as long as you stay within certain rules of acidity to be a lot sweeter. So I've had pickled artichoke hearts that were almost as sweet as like bread and butter pickles. They were really good. Uh, so I'm not going to talk a lot about pickling. I just wanted to, you know, kind of 
point you in that direction. Maybe it's a good thing to, to, to learn about this year. It's something we're going to learn about more. And one of the things I'm looking to do is figure out a nice way uh, to pickle green beans. Because uh, I think green beans are a great candidate, often overlooked as something to pickle, especially if you don't make them quite too sour. And then they're really good chopped up in a salad, so they're not necessarily have to be cooked. Uh, so that's something that we're looking at doing this year. Canning's another one that, that I'm really that, that's on my list of two two acquire skills in uh, 2009, and uh, we have budgeted to buy a pressure canner this year. And uh, I've did some canning as a kid with my grandmother, so I'm familiar with the process, but I haven't really canned in a very very long time. So I'm looking forward to doing that, especially with things like fresh salsa and uh, chow chow relish this year, because I'm going to have enough variety in my garden to make some chow chow relish. Uh, which is something, if you haven't experienced Chow Chow, all I can tell you is you're going to have to. I can't really explain it. Uh, if I had to explain it, you wouldn't understand. I'll leave it at that. But with canning, I wanted to point out there's two types of canning. There's what's called uh, water bath canning, and there's what's called pressure canning. And water bath canning, I wanted to make sure that I said this, is only usable with highly acidic things, such as tomatoes. You can can tomatoes with water bath because their acidic nature allows for it. You can make salsa and you can water bath can it, which is simply placing the uh, your, your jars in uh, boiling water for a specific length of time based on whatever it is that you're going to can, and then allowing the heat from the water bath inside the, the, the jar to seal that canning lid on top of that jar. That is probably not the best way to go, though, if you really want to get into canning, especially if you want to can things like beans, uh, broccoli, all the other vegetables that are low in acid, you need to do what's called pressure canning. And with pressure canning, you need basically a pressure cooker, pressure cooker slash pressure canner. And what happens in there is that that cooker actually seals. And there's only a very limited amount of steam that's allowed to get out through something called a petcock. And I can't really, this is something I can't do on audio and really explain how a pressure canner works. But what I'll tell you is that the water is in the bottom. The cans are sitting on a rack slightly above the water. And what happens is all the items in the can or the jar is really the way to look at this. And the temperature inside the jar and the temperature outside the jar gets much hotter than boiling. Because compressed steam is hotter than boiling water. So it uses the steam, highly pressurized steam, to cook slash uh, purify and remove any, uh, you'll kill anything that could be in there alive. It's basically what you do when you can. You kill every living organism in there, and then you seal it so that oxygen and any kind of infection can't get back in there. And once that's done, you have a very long-term storage item that can go on the shelf. The more I think about canning versus dehydrating, the more I'm gravitating toward dehydrating. Yet I'm still going to teach myself canning just as another skill to have. Uh, but it's, And I think I'll use it probably more for things like uh, chow chow and salsa. And for most other things, I'm going to stick to dehydrating because I think it's a superior method. Uh, from a space, weight, 
time, energy standpoint. Um, and then the next thing I want to point out, and a lot of people I think overlook this in the survivalist community, is freezing. If you have a backup generator system in a deep freezer, uh, barring the complete end of the world as we know it, your freezing is a pretty good way to go. And uh, I believe if you're gonna, if you don't own a, a deep freezer and you're thinking about buying one, buy the chest type, buy the one that you open the top and you look down into. Those ones that stand up. Every time you open that door, since cold weighs more than warm, all the cold air basically falls out of it. It has to work really hard to get the temperature back to freezing again. When you open a chest freezer, the cold is the coldest point is at the bottom, so it doesn't spill over and out. And uh, that's why when you open your freezer or your refrigerator that opens to the front on a hot day in the summer, it feels good. You feel like cold air coming out. Well, that's the air basically falling just because it's more dense than the warm air on the outside. So the warm air is rushing into the bottom, and then the uh, cold air is falling down on you. So advice on the chest, uh, on the deep freezer, go with a chest. Uh, but freezing is a great way to go. And don't overlook it. Don't think, oh, well, you know, when the electrical grid fails, then my freezer fails. You know, have a backup power source. And just if you, if you get into that situation where in the end of the world as we know it scenario, then you eat everything in your freezer first. You run it on, on your generator power, you know, a little bit every day to keep everything frozen in there, at least cold. You only open it when you need to. You ration your food, and when it's gone, it's gone, and then you're relying on your other sources. But with freezing, especially with vegetables, one of the things I wanted to point out is you need to also blanch. And there's blanching times and tables. And, again, I'm going to put a link to today's show notes where you can get some information on blanching times. Most people blanch with a strainer and a pot of boiling water and a lid. This is one of the places where I really like to use an appliance. And uh, if you go to department stores like Walmart or Colts, you can probably find a good steamer. And if you're going to be doing a lot of freezing this year and blanching of vegetables uh, or dehydrating and blanching of vegetables, you may want to consider getting a dedicated steamer just because they are so simplistic in their operation. They're much quicker, and it's easier to do multiple um, multiple batches with a steamer. The last one I wanted to point out today is uh, making jams, jellies, and preserves. And this is kind of a hybrid because at the end of the process, you basically have to can these items to keep them sealed up. But one of the beautiful things about jams, jellies, and preserves is that it preserves that fresh fruit flavor uh, of things like strawberries and raspberries and things like that for the winter time when they're not available. And it, it's really a great comfort food to have a nice piece of toast with like some fresh blackberry jam on it uh, or some strawberry preserves. And uh, for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with this, the only difference between preserves and a jam or a jelly is with preserves there's really big pieces of the fruit left intact. And uh, I happen to really like strawberry preserves for that reason. So that's something else to look at. And the, 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 again, the thing about preserves, or uh, should I say uh, jams, jellies, is it lets you kind of take uh, a lot of from the abundance that nature provides for us uh, in the forms of like wild blackberries, wild blueberries, wild strawberries. A lot of that stuff just grows, and you can go out there and forage it, and this is a great way to preserve it. And I guess I'll throw one more little one at the end there, because I can never not mention this. Using those types of fruits in beers, wines, 
and meads is another great way to make use of them in a very long-term preservation method. Obviously, a mead or a wine actually gets better with some age and some storage. So that's another skill that you might want to look at acquiring. I know today's show was really kind of like a shotgun blast of all these different things, and I didn't tell you specifically how to do a lot of things. But what I want to make sure that we're doing from time to time is just making you aware of what's available and getting you started so you can go research the how to do these things individually and on your own. But what I'm going to close today with is probably my favorite method of preserving meat, and that is biltong. And I've done this once before, but I'm going to do this again today. I'm going to tell you exactly how to make biltong. Biltong, for those that are not in the know, is like jerky, only it's a much superior product. It originates, as far as I know, from the southern African continent down around South Africa. The important thing when you're making biltong to understand is it relies on dry air, not heat, not sun, not smoke. Dry air, salt, and a little bit of vinegar. And then for flavoring, black pepper and coriander. That's as traditional with biltong as you can get. Now to really understand what I mean by dry air, southern Africa, much like where I was stationed in Panama, has two seasons, a wet season and a dry season. And, and let me be clear about how arid and dry the dry season is. When we would do training operations in the jungle in Panama in the wet season, and you would scratch yourself on thorn or something, and I'm talking a good deep scratch like you might get from a cat. That scratch during the wet season would be visible and on your body and probably slightly infected for weeks. It would take a very long time for that scratch to heal because the moisture in the air was so dense and there were so many organisms in the air because of the moisture that it, was, it would take a lot of time for it to heal, even covered and treated with some sort of antibiotic cream. In the dry season, you do the same scratch. And it would be gone and completely invisible within a week. The first day, it would immediately dry out and form a scab. By the third or fourth day, if you rubbed your hand on it, the scab would fall off, revealing completely healed pink skin. And you would have a complete healing, and, and you wouldn't even see any mark on your body within a week to two weeks. And those differences are why they made biltong in southern Africa in the dry season, not the wet season. Because nothing would infect the meat and the meat would dry very quickly because of the air. Now, we don't live in Southern Africa, at least most of us. I know a few people from Southern Africa listen to the show, and thank you for doing it, so I don't mean any disrespect. And we don't live in Panama, uh, so we don't have a dry season, so to speak. Now, if you guys live in the, the, the desert, well, you're perfectly equipped to make biltong. But what I learned from a guy named Peter Hathaway Capstick, who was a great writer, and you, if you like you know, writing about hunting in Africa and hunting all over the world, you really might want to check out some of his novels uh, and his, his books. I'm sorry, they're not novels. They're more uh, autobiography-type written books. And uh, Death in the Long Grass is probably my favorite one of his. But in, in his writing, I learned about Biltong, and I learned that an air-conditioned home was a perfect environment for making biltong. You might want to turn a fan on. So I know a lot of guys are out there building biltong boxes. Those who want to know what a biltong box is, you build a box, you put some holes in it, down in the bottom of the box you put a low wattage light bulb, and that creates a dry environment. You do not want a high wattage light bulb. You don't want heat from the light bulb. You're just trying to dry it out. Now what I do is I hang a string across my office, I turn the fan on in there, and I do it in the, you know, the summertime where we're running the air conditioner during the day. 
that keeps the room very dry, and I just hang it on a string in my room, and my wife freaks out because I got all this meat just hanging, you know, and I do it in deer season too as well. I have all this venison hanging and drying out of my office in the open air, and it seems counterintuitive to Americans. We must contain the meat in something. We can't just let it hang out there, but this is how they've been making biltong, folks, for thousands and thousands of years. It's really a form of dry pickling, and what they do in the bush, you know, up in the high veld in, in, in South Africa, they find a shady spot in the dry season, they put all the, they, you know, they, they get stick, and they thread it onto a stick, and then they hang it up in a tree somewhere where the, the game won't f- find it. They use the black pepper and coriander, not so much for flavor, but because it helps to repel flies and keep flies off it, and they just leave it out in the open. And after a few days, it's dried and it's done. So there's no problem. You don't need to build a biltong box. You might be better off putting your construction materials into something else. I'm just saying it's up to you. But how do you make it? Well, you need, basically you need several ingredients to do traditional. You need some vinegar, and I prefer to use apple cider vinegar. Put it in a spray bottle. You do not want to soak the meat in vinegar. It will not come out right if you soak the meat in vinegar. You just want to get the meat moist with vinegar. You need black pepper. For real traditional, you need some coriander. It needs to be ground, not in seed form. And you need salt. And you can use fine salt if you want to, but you're better off with kind of the uh, like uh, like rock, not really rock salt, but like the kosher salt, the heavier salt. Uh, something akin to what they put on your glass when they make you a margarita. That type of salt's going to work better for you. You take your meat and you cut it up. You do not cut it thin like jerky. Minimum thickness one inch and I prefer to make my biltong if I can with about inch and a half thickness and you can go as wide as you want I usually try to square it off though I make about one and a half by one and a half strips of meat as long as the cut I'm working with is you know will allow for that if I'm working with let's say the back leg of a piece of venison what I'll actually do is I'll cut like a giant uh, steak one and a half inch thick steak around the bone, deboned off. And then I'll take the knife and I basically cut a spiral pattern, descending spiral pattern toward the center at an inch and a half thick. I make one giant long strip, right? And I'll hang that from the roof and I'll just break it up once it's dried. Or if you, you know, don't want it to be too long, you cut it in half. But you know what I'm saying here, big, long, thick strips of meat. Don't think jerky. This isn't jerky. Once you have your meat, in that situation, the best thing I've found to do with your meat then is just put it in a tub and throw it in the refrigerator. Don't go salting it, vinegaring it right away. Just don't do it right away. Throw it in the refrigerator. A lot of times there's some blood in the meat that will go ahead and bleed out for you and drain out for you, and you can pour that off. It'll be nice and cold and hard when you work on it. It doesn't need to stay in there a long time, maybe an hour. Take it back out. Lay it out on a work surface. Spray it with your vinegar. Coat it with your salt. Do not coat it like you're making like candy coated something where it's complete you can't even see the meat anymore I've seen people do that, it comes out way too salty, you just basically want to get a little bit of salt everywhere on your meat 
Throw it back in your tub. You've got now salt and vinegar on the meat. Again, you've only sprayed the meat with the vinegar. You haven't soaked it. Please don't soak it. You will regret it. If you want to, and I usually do, I go ahead and put my coriander and black pepper on the meat while I'm salting it as well. Uh, you're going to have to add more, but it starts to flavor the meat, starts to seep into the meat. The next day, you need to let this sit overnight in a refrigerator. Take it back out of your refrigerator. Brush all, if there's salt on it that you can still see or feel, you brush it off. Completely brush it off. Now add some fresh coriander and fresh black pepper to your meat. And then you hang it in a cool, dry space. And what the meat will basically do is mummify. That's the only way I can describe it. When you look at a piece of biltong, you don't think, oh, that's jerky. You know it's different. It looks different. It feels different. You'll be surprised at how light a large piece of it really is, how well it dehydrates. It is the most amazing thing I've ever done with meat in my life. I've turned entire deers into biltong just because I love venison biltong so gone much. The only problem with biltong is something you store is it's very hard to store because you're going to want to eat it. It has a lot of flexibility too. You can grab a couple sticks of it, take it with you on a camping trip or out into a fishing trip or on a, you know, a hike or something like that and use it for energy and just eat it. But it also really is great for cooking for a dish with a little bit of meat added to it, sliced and then heat it up with a little bit of moisture. It'll rehydrate some. It never ends up tasting like traditional cooked meat. It's actually, to me, in some ways better. I guess you get tired of it after a while. Uh, but it's a great little way to put some meat into like a stew or something. It's a great little thing to chop some of this up and put it into your own uh, your own field ration, so to speak. Let's say you do some dehydrating with uh, potatoes, carrots, beans, uh, throw some uh, beef bouillon cubes in there, a little bit of dried pasta and some biltong. That's, that's, you know, to me, a hell of a lot better of a meal than, you know, beef stew from a uh, mountain house package. So biltong is something you're really going to want to look at. If you are a hunter and you're a successful hunter that brings home a lot of meat, especially you guys that are shooting like up in the in the western states like elk you know if you're out there getting an elk every year and you've got that much meat you're really going to want to look into making at least some of that elk uh into biltong and don't be afraid to use some of the the what do you call good cuts of meat for it i would never make biltong out of back straps i lie i did it once but uh i probably wouldn't with elk uh the back straps uh those are just uh too good you know fresh grilled uh but anything else i would be willing to do it so, hopefully this gives you a, just a, a new idea about some different methods of food preservation and things that you can do to extend the storage life of your food, both from the field, the farmer's market, and the garden. And uh, with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap today's show up. I hope it was uh, interesting for you. I know I moved around a lot. I talked about a lot of different things. Tomorrow we're going to have a completely different kind of show, and I'm going to be talking about having your own Declaration of Independence. That's not what the show is going to be about, but you you can bet I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to have mine ready for you to read, and I'm going to have a place ready for you to publish your own Declaration of Independence. This has been Jack Spierko with the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.